So I hate to ask, but could you share with us who the recording artist is who did that song? Uh, that is one uh, Weird Al Yankovic. How do you feel about Daniel Radcliffe playing him in the this new movie? I mean, why not? Is why not? <laughs> why not is always a really good question to ask. Maybe that should be the question from hell every week for our guests. Just ask them, <laughs> so why not? Live from the secret underground headquarters of Antifa and the front lines of the war on Christmas, this is hell today and through the first week of 2023. We are playing the best of 2022 as chosen by you with some input from our staff. We begin our best of This Is Hell 2022 edition with an interview that was on the list of nearly everyone who has responded with their favorites so far. Our first conversation in no particular order is from August 18th, a conversation we had with Dr. Heather Berg, who is the author of the Boston Review article, Freedom, Not Benefits, Sex Workers Are Labor's Vanguard, the left ignores them at its peril. You know, I was going to use as a headline for the, this week's interview was sex work and the Democratic Party. But then I thought that <laughs> that might not be, uh, might be a little misleading. Uh, we will not only be playing that talk shortly, but you will also hear our introduction of Dr. Berg from that day in its entirety. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, uh, live streaming, podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing is Sebastian Vuper, Sebastian how was your weekend without your wife and who was traveling out of town? But was this your first weekend without your wife since getting married earlier this year? Uh, I mean, it was the first weekend without her ever since the second wedding, but not since the first wedding. Oh, okay. Um, so, <laughs> I love your multiple weddings. Yeah. Uh, and what I did was, um, uh, just, I mean, I hung out with people for for a brief time, but for the most part, like the most interesting thing I did was just watch all seven hours of Adam Curtis's new documentary. Oh, how is it? Collapse of Russia, uh, of Russia, of communism in Russia, and then also the collapse of democracy. Uh, very depressing, but very good. I heard that there's no narration, right? It's just footage. Yeah, it's it's basically it's just footage. There's like um, some on-screen. I mean, the narration is basically reduced to just like some on-screen text that's um, clearly in Adam Curtis's voice, um, because well, when you read, you can just basically hear me that. Um, but yeah, other than that, there's really nothing. It's just it's just a, a very long collage of of things, and uh, yeah, it's like the distillation of Adam Curtis to his purest form it's like basically really just vibes um and yeah it's pretty good that's very cool uh, i i really like the errol morris uh kind of framing of a documentary where you never see him where it's not about yeah, him whatsoever yeah. which is fantastic and i love this next step where you don't hear anybody and you just get the images that's very very cool so are you playing a past inside the present today did you decide i'm actually not playing one i am a reading oh no <laughs> Yep, sorry, whoops. <laughs> I didn't know you had a new one in your uh, portfolio. No, it's not a new one. It's actually an old one, but it's one that I haven't read on um, on uh, outside of Patreon. Oh, oh okay. I just read this on Patreon when you were down with COVID. And, uh, and when you and Jeff did uh, Yeah, Patreon. yeah, yeah. And oh, so awesome. I was like, you know, this was pretty good, and uh, more people should hear it. Um, I hope none of our Patreon subscribers are. Oh, um, no, that's okay. If they speaking are. speaking of which, man, uh, I am I am sitting on my behind this morning. Where's the bed music? There's the bed music. Hello, bed music. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so, 
Uh, yeah, so, so I just decided to just read that. I was like, this this morning, I was like, okay, can I just cut this out of Patreon and just like render that and then upload? And I'm like, you know, like, well, you know what? Screw that. Yeah. I'm going to print out the script and just read it live. I'm going to, uh, we're going to be replaying a monologue that I did on Patreon earlier this year that somebody requested that we play over the year as well. So, listeners who are not Patreon subscribers, and I don't know why you're not a Patreon subscriber, but listeners who are not a Patreon subscriber will be throughout the best of 2022 edition that we'll be doing the best of This Is Hell uh, 2022 edition that we're going to be playing for the next couple of weeks. Uh, You're going to hear some of the stuff that we play on Patreon, so you'll get a little bit of a taste of that. Maybe that will turn you into a Patreon patron. My weekend was all about shame and trying to cover for mine. That is, producer Lindsay Gorey is cat-sitting for my non-spouse and I, our cats that is, which means she needs to have access to my home where our cats live, which means she had to come over to our home this weekend, actually enter our home and get the grand tour so she can care for our cats, which means I spent all weekend cleaning the house so we would not be too humiliated by our home's appearance. Shame is a powerful drug, so powerful it got me to clean our house this weekend. Sebastian, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Uh, this week's question from hell is, uh, the proverbial worst gift you can get during the holiday season is a lump of coal. But who knows where to buy a lump of coal anymore? In these modern times, what is the worst gift you can possibly receive during the holidays? I would imagine with climate change, it would still be a lump of coal, right? Uh, Maybe a bucket of <laughs> gas to go with that. <laughs> That's kind of kind of elusive. <laughs> you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook yeah, I got page. A bucket of a bucket of gas. <laughs> <laughs> enjoy, enjoy. You can leave your yeah, that would be a bag though. I think you would need a bag to actually mm. contain that. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at this is hell radio, or you can. Uh, Oh, uh, but, uh, you know, we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner of this week's question from hell, as we do each and every week. If your answer is our favorite, you will get your choice of This Is Hell stuff. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, as you could tell by Sebastian's joke earlier. Stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Sebastian has... This week's Hangover Cure, and Sebastian is delighted to learn that this is the last time we will be giving out an Icelandic Hangover Cure. Uh, okay. Again, with, uh, okay. (laughs) For the fifth week in a row, the fifth week in a row, (laughs) and for the final time, I'll believe it when I see it, we are citing an article posted at the website IcelandAirwaves at grapevine.is, headlined, where to cure your festival hangover with, quote, words by Irina Zubienko. I want to do words by from now on. I'm never going to put by or written by. It's always going to be words by. Mm. Not yeah, sentences, like, not paragraphs, but the words. Yeah, it's like it's like when uh, it's like when a drummer in a band is is credited on the in the liner notes with skins. Oh, good, good lord. <laughs> We have already offered Zubianko's hangover cure recommendations of jumping in a pool, going out for potassium-rich food, drinking spinach juice, and taking, quote-unquote, the nap. (laughs) The final Icelandic hangover cure suggested by Zubianko in her article is the right back at it. Uh, She writes, 
Quote, some people say that the best way to cure a hangover is to just keep drinking. We agree that a cold beer tastes better than coffee on a festival morning after. But beware, drink responsibly. Avoid mixing drinks, order smaller quantities, and take breaks. Experience shows that sometimes swapping a gin and tonic for just tonic won't make a difference on how much fun you're having. But you will thank yourself later. That being said, if you throw all of our advice together and have a morning swim, a nap, and a good meal and drinking spinach juice, then, God, you'll be unstoppable. See you at the party, baby. You're golden. End quote. <laughs> that makes this week's Hangover Cure our last Hangover Cure from Iceland, at least for now. I really can't. Can it really be a, a list of Hangover Cures from Iceland without fermented shark? Uh, at least for now, and that's to get right back to drinking, but consider drinking a tonic instead of a gin and tonic, especially after going to the pool, eating potassium-rich foods, drinking spinach juice, and taking, quote-unquote, the nap. <laughs> I keep wondering if there's going to be a new car by Nissan called the Nap. I think that would be a really great car. Maybe with the seats that go back, so it can what, turn like, into a bit. What, like a, a car that's that's like long a long distance car, <laughs> and which which is auto which has like a functioning autopilot yeah. that does not explode. The Nap sounds great. Mm. So tell us what your favorite shows of 2022 were. Who were your favorite guests? Was there a moment of truth by Jeff Dorchin or a past inside the present by Sebastian Vupper that really stood out? Or maybe we did something on Patreon that you really liked, but has yet to be played on air. That's what we're going to be doing with Sebastian's past inside the present today. It is something that was on Patreon exclusively, and now we're taking it from behind the paywall so you can see what we do on Patreon. We are still taking suggestions from you, our listening audience. Just tell us your favorites from this year on This Is Hell by emailing Chuck at thisishell.com, messaging us via Facebook or uh, DMing us via Twitter. And who knows, maybe, just maybe, we'll play your favorite uh, over the holidays. Derek B. told us on Facebook that his favorites of 2022 were the Borderline Police State interview with Reese Jones. It was a highlight for me this year, Derek writes, as I enjoy his books. Anything with Brian Muir is always a good time. And lastly, the staff pick of your 2005 interview with Michael Parenti, which you replayed behind the Patreon wall. Joel G. tweeted at us that his favorites of 2022 were our talks discussing L.A.'s homeless industrial complex, Donna Murch on her book Asada Taught Me, the Gerald Horn interview, Gerald Horn interview in July, our conversation on the war on the poor, our discussion on how Florida will try to kill you, as well as our talk with Joe Winston on the legacy of Harold Washington. Somebody named Jeff D. also emailed us his favorites, which include uh, also includes the uh, Texas and the Origins of American Fascism interview with Gerald Horn, Zachary Manfredi on Radical Human Rights, Susan Paulson on Strategic Degrowth, Power, Corruption, and Lies in Brazil's Presidential Election with Brian Muir, and our interview on the Great Replacement World Tour with Pranay Samayajula. Thanks to everyone who has sent us your favorites of This Is Hell so far. Send us your favorites of 2022 and stay tuned in to see if your suggested favorite made it on the best of 2022. Coming up on the show, Dr. Heather Berg and sex worker activism. We'll tell you what happened on our most recent Patreon podcast of This Is Hell, exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. And we'll announce the next interview selected by you for the 2022 edition of 
the best of This Is Hell. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. And now our August 18th interview with Dr. Heather Berg. This is hell. Few people, few workers have fewer rights than sex workers. They have led precarious lives and have been the targets of abuse, even deadly state violence for as long as anyone can remember. And nobody is seemingly doing a damn thing about it other than sex workers and sex work activists. Much can be learned from their experiences that can inform us about labor rights and our very relationship with work. So why aren't those who are concerned about labor rights listening to those engaged in what can be one of the most oppressive lines of work? Here to help us understand, Dr. Heather Berg is author of the Boston Review article, Freedom Not Benefits, Sex workers are labor's vanguard. The left ignores them at its peril. Welcome to This Is Hell, Heather. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for being on our show. This uh, article is absolutely fascinating. We have had many discussions on the air about sex work in the past, but never from this perspective of sex work, just being a general critique in, of work and our relationship with work. You write how Tamara, you quote Tamara McLeod, uh, the pseudonym of a freelance writer, sex worker, and activist based in England. Uh, listeners can find her on Twitter at Hi Tamara McLeod, that's M-A-C-L-E-O-D. And you begin your article by quoting Tamara in the wake of FOSTA-SESTA, a 2018 law that cut off sex workers' ability to use the Internet to screen clients for safety, advertise without a middleman, and communicate with each other. Tamara states, facing a future offline was like anticipating survival in a world with no running water or electricity. FOSTA-SESTA are, are two U.S. laws passed by Congress The that uh, that's the allow states and victims to fight online sex trafficking act and the stop enabling sex traffickers act both have sex trafficking or sex trafficker in their names were these laws aimed at ending sex trafficking specifically but not sex work and if that is not the case if fosta sesta's goal is to end sex work more generally why package the laws as being against specifically sex trafficking and not the larger overall sex work industry? Yeah, I mean, some some folks um, do what, what they call like, assuming good intent um, of lawmakers. I don't buy it. Um, I think there's there's just so much overwhelming historical and contemporary evidence that laws like these um, not only don't meet the promise of addressing the real problem of sex trafficking, um, but also create a lot of havoc for people in their wake. Um, and one thing I want to say just at the start is that there aren't two totally discrete groups. And sometimes sex worker activists have to make this argument to, to be a little bit more palatable to, say, mainstream politicians. But it's not the case case that there are there's one group of people who fully consent to sex work and another people who are bludgeoned over the head um, and trafficked but rather than most people exist on a consent continuum as they do in all sorts of informal work um, and so laws that further criminalize one part of this community will necessarily have reverberating effects on other parts. Um, so no, the, the, I think there's no way to imagine that the actual intent of these laws was to address sex trafficking. We know that you know, there are really um, clear ways that 
lawmakers could do that if what they wanted to do was help people get out of situations they don't want to be in. Um, those things would include fixing the foster care system. They would include housing for queer youth who are really overrepresented in communities of people who are trafficked. Um, it would include things, you know, basic stuff, housing, access to healthcare, um, and and none of that fits under the rubric of laws that surveil what sex workers do online. On WHYY, Philadelphia's The Pulse, reporter Liz Tung, uh, she quoted activist and sex worker Daniel Blunt saying FASTA Sesta, Sesta has been a devastating, has had a devastating effect on the community and the community's ability to support themselves, to take care of themselves, to make money and to screen clients and stay safe. You write of FASTA Sesta that it was in making third-party websites liable for the content that users post. The law pushed sex work-specific platforms to shutter and others to ban sex workers, sex worker users. As sex work is a crime, was this crackdown to be expected? Well, you know, first I'll just clarify that not all sex work is criminalized. So FOSTA-SESTA nominally targeted criminalized forms of sex work or prostitution, but it, their effects um, shaped how all sorts of sex workers from porn workers to cam girls to folks who are advertising for stripping or erotic dance and how all sorts of people engaged their labor. Um, and so, so that's one piece. Um, and, and I think something that a lot of, of civilians or non-sex workers don't understand is that when you can't advertise independently, you're actually more um, dependent on predatory third parties, whether those be sex work specific advertising sites that charge a huge cut um, and that you now have to use because your Twitter account's been shut down, for example, or, um, and I'll use porn as one example, um, but, actual in-person managers, directors, and producers who have more power if people can't self-produce and advertise and distribute content on their own. Uh, the Pulse's Liz Tung adds in her writing that the laws have also had another effect. FOSTA-SESTA laws have had another effect. The emergence of a grassroots movement that's giving voice to sex workers' concerns in an unprecedented way. She then mm -hmm. quotes activist Blunt saying, one thing that FOSTA-SESTA did do was sort of mobilize very vocal online sex workers with large followings in a way that they made maybe hadn't been politicized before. And because it became so vi uh, visible online, uh, like despite the ways that we're uh, being shadow banned and the ways that we're being policed and the ways that we're being surveilled, somehow this like very random set of bills that turned into a law became something where now presidential candidates are being asked about what their stance on sex work is. And I do not think that would have happened without the community organizing that happened around mobilizing against FOSTA-SESTA. Now, this is a quote from Daniel Blunt from back during the 2020 presidential campaign. Considering both laws have sex trafficking in their titles when it comes to FOSTA-SESTA, how politically viable is it for any candidate to oppose FOSTA-SESTA or any incumbent politician to voice their opposition to sex trafficking laws? Or is there actual growing public support against these sex trafficking laws? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think both things are true. Um, it's it's really hard and, and risky for mainstream politicians to come out against laws like this. 
Um, they are, you know, titled under sex trafficking prevention because that is a highly effective bipartisan technique for, for getting uh, legislation passed. And it's also true that there is a, a real um, sea change that, as Blunt says, is absolutely um, due to sex workers organizing. And so I, I do think things are changing. Um, I think voters, uh, because of sex worker organizing, are um, are asking these questions in different ways and, and more and more making it impossible for legislators to ignore them. And the, the one other thing I'll mention is just that, um, that the Sex Worker Researcher Collective that Blunt is involved with, Hacking Hustling, has put out an incredible research that I really recommend readers turn to um, on the intersection between shadow banning of sex worker accounts and increased surveillance of activists. So it's true that sex worker activism is, is changing the nature of the conversation. And it's also true that the risks for talking about this publicly are even higher for people who both do sex work and do public activism. Just so people know, what is shadow banning? <laughs> um, so it's a practice in where your account on Twitter, for example, would be uh, deep prioritized in Twitter's algorithm um, such that people couldn't search for you. I'm currently shadow banned. So, um, so for example, I retweeted your tweet this yesterday about our show, um, but no one can see it because Twitter thinks that I'm doing sex work right now. And so has, uh, has hidden results um, involving my name. So, but none of this is communicated to you. So you, you know this only because well, sex workers have figured out how to search for it um, in ways that, that get around the shadowiness, but, uh, but it's a way to, to deprioritize, uh, accounts and information in the algorithm without ever communicating that and thus makes it harder to fight directly. No wonder I couldn't tag you on Facebook yesterday. I was right. trying to figure that out yep. because usually when in the URL, when you get to the person's Facebook page, it says after facebook.com, it says what your, you know, coded name is so people can mm. find it better and yeah. yours just came up with something that said profile equals hp question mark and made absolutely uh, no sense what whatsoever so oh that's interesting yeah, i didn't was, know it was facebook too yeah yeah very much so 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 is yeah. when it comes to the use of sex trafficking in bills names or in acts names or in laws that are signed in or bills that are signed into laws names is sex, uh, sex trafficking uh, a cover for uh, racist, misogynist, or patriarchal laws as, uh, you know, sex work is often something that is uh, disproportionately experienced by people who are marginalized? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it absolutely is a cover. And, and I'll say, you know, that's not new at all. FOSSA-SESA did mean a, a really massive rupture in all of this, but the, there's a much longer history here. Um, one early example of that is the Mann Act, which was an explicitly racist law that policed um, women's traffic, if you will, and as the law stated it, over state lines. Um, and that began um, amidst a, a kind of flurry of concern around white women's interracial sex. Um, and so like there, there, it has always been attached to these concerns about mobility. Um, prior to that, we're looking at in, in post-emancipation policy, a lot of early anti-sex trafficking policy was directly geared towards reducing Black women's mobility um, and forcing them to stay in 
underpaid jobs um, in the South. And so like, there's, a, there's a much longer history here um, and we can see how that history informs contemporary policy, absolutely. You write that middle managers saw FOSTA-SESTA as a boon, an opportunity to serve as intermediaries for a workforce newly constrained in their ability to use the web to facilitate independent gig work. Sex workers had to take more risks with clients and were more vulnerable to abusive cops. Some died, more will. How do these middle managers operate, and have they benefited while sex workers have suffered? Was this intentional, that... It was believed by the people who are writing these laws that introducing middle managers to the process would somehow deter sex trafficking and operating online. Mm-hmm. I mean, so no, that that part wasn't intentional. I don't think lawmakers sat there and thought, you know, let's let's give the the grimiest porn producers more power. Um, but I do. But it is my argument in that piece and elsewhere. Um, that, that anti-sex work policy in general is geared towards forcing sex workers to work under a boss. Now, as, as far as lawmakers would have it, that would be under bosses in civilian or non-sex work jobs. I think a lot of what animates policy like this is the desire to get people back to low-wage service work. And that's, I think, why it's not a mistake that, for example, increasing surveillance of OnlyFans workers came about at exactly the same time as we were hearing about a mass exodus of food service workers, right? Um, so there's there's that connection too. Um, and can you remind me, I'm sorry, the, the second part of your question. Uh, just that was this intentional, you know, what, yeah. was this an intentional process that the, the belief was if we somehow privatize this, if we somehow bring in middle managers, that this will address sex trafficking? Right. Yeah, thanks. So, so no, I, again, I don't think that the intent was to, to give more power to middle managers, but really anyone who's paying attention could imagine that that's what happens. So, for example, again, in the porn industry, we saw in the late 2010s, just this massive shift from, in terms of who had power in the industry. And as it became more and more possible for performers to self-produce, producers and directors who were not sex workers um, had less and less control over their workforce. Uh, many managers even complained to me that fewer people would work for them. Um, wages went up, all sorts of things shifted. And, and so there's no, and there's no world in which a lawmaker could not understand that if you take away people's ability to work independently, they will be um, more dependent on third-party managers. So that happened in criminalized sectors as well. And countless sex workers talked about the tits and sass piece that I linked to in the Boston Review article mentions this, but um, folks talked about just in the hours after FOSTA-SESTA was passed, sex workers were getting uh, DMs on Twitter and um, and through their advertising accounts from pimps saying, well, you need me again now. And so that this is exactly what they warned lawmakers. Um, they had been lobbying for months saying this is what's going to happen. And hours after the laws were passed, that's exactly what happened. So FOSTA-SESTA, if that benefits pornographers and pimps, do, do the lawmakers who signed on to this law, the lawmakers who wrote these laws, do they favor the rights of pornographers and pimps? Do they want to benefit pornographers and pimps more than they want to uh, benefit the sex workers themselves? 
you know, I, I can't speak to their, their deepest desire. You know, I think, I think what they want um, is to benefit, uh, to benefit retail and food service bosses more than anything. I think, you know, it's not, um, I'm sure no one would say that they're, they're, they're in it to, to help out, um, you know, porn producers. And, and to be clear, and I don't think there's anything less ethical or grimier about, you know, managing a porn set um, than managing a McDonald's. <laughs> so, but at the end of the day, yeah, what lawmakers I think have long wanted is to keep, you know, in particular women and queers um, subordinate to, to bosses. And so, well, you know, historically that's been in domestic labor and again, in food service and retail, and we can see what that looks like now. Um, the kind of side effect of that is that it empowers all sorts of bosses. We are speaking with Dr. Heather Berg, author of the Boston Review article, Freedom Not Benefits, Sex Workers Are Labor's Vanguard, The Left Ignores Them at Its Peril. You can find Heather on Twitter at drheatherberg, that's B-E-R-G, and find out more about her by visiting drheatherberg.org. She uh, has a, a book out, came out last year. It's entitled Porn Work, Sex, Labor, and Late Capitalism. So when it comes to the left and sex work, you write, the civilian, that is the non-sex worker left, has been overwhelmingly quiet about sex worker rights. This failure of solidarity has made it easier for the state to push a community of workers into e ever more precarious conditions. But failed solidarities are never just that. They re refract back, exposing fundamental vulnerabilities in those whose solidarities fail. When there should be allies quietly endorse state violence, sex workers are not the only ones who lose. Quietly endorse state violence. Is this being done uh, by the uh, civilian left actively or passively? Is this a matter of the civilian left, as you call it, uh, s support for the criminalization of sex work? Or is this the civilian uh, left not being aware, or worse, not being concerned about sex worker abuse conducted by the state, especially in the form of policing. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I think some of this is absolutely active. There's a real cohort of actively anti-sex worker uh, people who who call themselves leftists. I want to I want to be clear there. I don't, I don't think it's possible to be a leftist and be anti-sex worker. Um, but that that's real. There. Um, are a lot of social democrats in particular who are, you know, very much, in, in as well as as people farther on the left and communists and et cetera, um, who who are very invested in the idea of work itself as dignified, but uh, there being things about work under capitalism that need tweaking. Um, and if you come to the table with that position, then you are, you are necessarily and often actively anti-sex worker. Um, so just a brief example of what that looks like. I recently had a, someone conducted an interview with me for a social democratic publication um, and the editor there killed it because I talked about how sex workers organize um, outside the state so that they prefer say mutual aid to reform and often prefer strategies like self-production, like working independently to trade union strategies. And so this social democratic editor said, uh, you know, nothing against sex workers, but these aren't tactics we support. And the thing is you can't support a community, but also have nothing but disdain for the tactics that work for them. Um, and so 
I think that's that's part of the active piece. There's also a lot of bourgeois morality on the left on, among people who call themselves leftists, um, people who have a lot of attachments to the idea that that appropriate sex is unpaid, um, and that monogamy is a cornerstone of the kind of futures we want to build, and so on. Um, and then I think there's a lot of passive support too. What that can look like is. Um, I think support, very selective support for sex worker organizing, where you'll see, um, again, kind of mainstream left uh, publications supporting, say, a stripper union drive, because it looks exactly like the kind of organizing that's most legible to them, but um, no support at all for, for example, movements against um, shadow banning or banking discrimination. So, and then the final, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. Go on. Um, just the final thing I'll say is that I think that a lot of leftists, especially leftist men, um, are often kind of shy about supporting sex worker rights. And I, I think this is, it's just become really interesting to me how many uh, civilian left comrades will kind of tell me privately that they support these, these um, movements, but are embarrassed to do so publicly because they're afraid that other leftists will, you know, will think they, they're, um, big into porn. And so we can see all the ways that these kind of um, attachments to to a particular kind of sexuality informs us too. So were you surprised by that reaction from the editors of Jacobin? Oh, <laughs> I, I really can't name it. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd like that. <laughs> I, um, no, I wasn't surprised. I was surprised they commissioned the interview in the first place, quite honestly. Um, but, uh, but no, I mean, I, I don't find it surprising, but I do, um, you know, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. I, I think in, in this moment, I mean, the left is in such crisis. The world is on fire. <laughs> Working people have really, really urgent concerns and um, and I just I think it sucks that um, that that the kind of political horizon of people who are, are putting positioning themselves as the the vanguard of this moment is so foreshortened. I mean, really, what they're asking for is so limited. And I think, yeah, I just think our, our current moment calls for much, much bigger demands. I think our current moment uh, calls for more people saying, I'm not mad, I'm disappointed. I think that's, that's very good on your part, Heather. Uh, you write that this left narrative argues that gig work is new and newly exploitative. Its primary goal yeah. is to bring gig workers back into full-time employee status and the securities and relationships the state imagined to have once been tied to it. But sex work has always been gig work. Sex workers, belie, stories belie the idea that gig workers are dumbly lured by false promises of flexibility. Many sex workers seek out sex work precisely because it does not follow the rules of full-time jobs. People with disabilities, like myself, caretakers, activists, and organizers, artists, and others whose lives can't accommodate schedules bosses set might pursue sex work because it means better conditions or because they find it impossible to get and keep straight jobs, especially for those marginalized in civilian work. As sociologist Angela Jones writes, sex, works, sex work is, quote, a literal lifeline. To you, what explains the civilian left's opposition to worker flexibility, to gig work out of the standard work schedule imposed by businesses and employers for generations? What explains that kind of opposition to gig work? Yeah. 
I mean, I think I think a big piece of it is that the, the the kind of sector of the civilian left that I'm taking aim at here um, has a lot of attachments to the the male white um, nu nuclearly <laughs> family attached um, an able-bodied worker. So this that is where so much of this kind of Fordist nostalgia comes back to. Um, where again, I just think. God, you know, in the year of our Lord 2022, what you're asking for is still like some kind of return to the Ford factory. Um, but but when when you actually look at these demands, they're kinds of political demands that would serve that kind of worker. So I think part of what's behind this attachment is um, a lot of ableism, a lot of racism, um, misogyny, again, um, attachments to a particular kind of family form, um, but also the sense again that that work isn't the problem but that some of the ways in which it's compensated and some of its conditions underlay capitalism are a problem um, whereas for sex workers and for a lot of other people um, overrepresented in racialized disabled and queer communities um, it's it's clear that like waged work is the issue um, so i think that's part of what's behind it um, i think also i see a lot in in mainstream left um, circles, this this kind of sense that um, that folks don't want total transformation, but but want conditions to be a little bit less crushing for the people who take out their trash, and um, and at the end of the day, that you know the the demand there is not to radically redistribute what work looks like, um, but rather again to you know fight for fifteen, which is. It's a pretty, pretty limited demand, I think, at this point. So does gig work provide a workplace free of the discrimination against workers of color, those with disabilities and trans workers as well? Does gig work fulfill a need, a demand for discrimination free workplaces for those who are discriminated against? Yeah, absolutely not. It, it, it doesn't. And, it, you know, gig worker organizing is the first to tell us that, um, that the gig work often makes that promise, but, but it doesn't come through. But I think the thing that I am always trying to highlight is that even as that's true, that gig work often fails at those promises, that gig workers aren't stupid for trying to find them in gigs. So there are two, you know, this one thing to say that like Uber is a shitty boss, that racism is rampant there too, obviously ableism, et cetera. Um, but that, that it's not, it's not a kind of miscalculation on workers' part to say that driving Uber might make more sense for them than working at an Amazon warehouse. Um, and so I think I think parsing those things apart becomes really crucial for me. And you talk about this mention this idea, this notion of enclosure. You write of sex workers have long sought out ways to make a living independently. They have also long faced the state's attempts to cut this strategy off at the knees. The internet is the kind of as a kind of commons, a public space that working people can use to rest autonomy and live otherwise. It is for that reason vulnerable to the capitalist state's efforts to curb its liberatory potential. You then quote uh, activist and sex worker Tamara McLeod writing, cyberspace can be enclosed. And you explain that she frames prohibitions against digital sex work as tools of enclosure, part of the longer story of efforts by the capitalist state to make it harder for working people to survive 
outside the wage, wage relation. Enclosure manifests as sex worker uh, criminalization, but also in vagrancies laws that criminalize homelessness, zoning ordinances that prohibit street vending, and the growing privatization of public goods. Efforts yeah. by the capitalist state to make it harder for working people to survive outside the wage, rela- wage relation. How do sex workers work outside the wage relation? Is the capitalist state against sex work because it's not taxed or is being outside the wage relation more than just that taxability? Mm-hmm. I mean, so uh, again, um, just as many forms of sex work um, are not currently criminalized in the US, um, sex workers do overwhelmingly pay their taxes. Um, and I don't say that in in a ter- in to make a kind of respectability claim, like these are good tax paying citizens. I don't think there's any, any glory in that, but it just makes sense a lot of people do because it's safer to do so. Um, so I'll say that first. Um, I think you know the, the we can see what this looks like historically. Again, um, that the capitalist state has directly identified sexual labor, uh, paid sexual labor, as something that allows women and queers, and particularly racialized women and queers, um, a little bit more room to maneuver. So again, if we're looking. Um, in terms of, of how freed women tried to, to move and just assert mobility um, in the late 1900s, we're looking at a story of the, the state understanding that getting paid directly for your sex work gave people a lot more freedom than working in domestic work for white bosses, for example. Um, we can see in other contexts that it was something that people did um, to facilitate their saying no to factory labor. Um, or again, I think this is part of the what's what's so um, terrifying for the state about sex work under contemporary conditions um, when there is a perceived shortage of low wage workers and young people are saying that they can make in an hour what fast food workers are making in a week. I'm like, well, why would you not take that that bargain. Um, and so, yeah, so I don't think it's so much just the taxation issue because, because people do pay their taxes and, um, you know, there's obviously all sorts of white collar work in which people skirt tax law, but it's this ability to move. It's this ability to say no to other work. It's the ability to leave, um, heterosexual relationships that are harmful. Um, there are all sorts of things that sex work can make possible for people, and I say that not to romanticize it. It's also like often really hard won, um, but it does ensure a kind of mobility that, that the state doesn't want working people to have. You right now, sex workers are staring down the barrel of the Earn It Act, currently advanced in the Senate, a law that would end internet encryption and make it even harder for sex workers to use the web to make money independently and safely, like other legal interventions sold as ways to protect kids from stranger danger. These laws both fail at their task and wreak havoc in their wake. And you add that sex workers have repeatedly appealed to allies for support, organizing through Survivors Against SESTA, hashtag Stop Earn It, and awareness campaigns about the harms of banking discrimination. If respectable workers faced similar mass income loss or policy interventions that made their jobs overwhelmingly less safe, the left would surely offer their support. How does banking discrimination make sex workers' jobs less safe? 
Mm-hmm. Well, again, I mean, it's, it's, I think, not a mistake that banking discrimination, um, which is directly enabled by state policy, both because banks are trying to get one step ahead of possible trafficking charges, but also because sex workers aren't a legally protected category um, in anti-discrimination law. And so it's not a mistake that this law cuts off sex workers' ability to get paid, to get their money, not just to you know, be, have naked images online, for example. Um, and so what that does, and, and it shifts depending on the sector we're talking about, but again, it forces sex workers to take more risks and to give a higher cut of their earnings to third parties. Um, and, and so I think part of what I'm trying to highlight in this piece is like we know, or anyone who's paying attention knows that these are really urgent and scary problems for sex working people. I'm trying to pivot a bit and say like, that is true, but I'm also not sure that continuing to say that is gonna convince the horophobic left to do anything because it hasn't in spite of sex workers repeated attempts to do so. But just to remind that that these that the effects of of laws like this and of policies such around banking discrimination, for example, aren't going to stop here. Um, and I think if we turn back to Erna and to these questions around encryption, it just becomes really key to think about what this will mean for labor organizing more broadly. So, you know, just last week we learned that Starbucks is. Uh, calling the cops on union organizers and also um, subpoenaing their communications. And so that's just one of so many examples of where like, people are going to wish that they'd listen to sex workers, because if you can't communicate, um, you know, with any expectation of privacy, what it looks like to do even the most mainstream kind of union drive totally changes. You also point out that in many instances, these laws do not make children safer, earn it, or FOSTA SESA, given that their abusers are most likely to be family members. Fewer than 0.01% of missing kids are abducted by a stranger. And FOSTA SESA has resulted in just one trafficking prosecution in the four years since its passage. So is FOSTA SESA, is earn it? Are both these, uh, all these acts and laws, are they all based on a myth? If, if stranger danger is a myth, something we've discussed on this show several times in the past, what is, what is it a cover for, especially in outcomes like FOSTA-SESTA? What, what are they, why are they creating this myth to get these laws passed? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I think again, and, you know, I don't mean to sound conspiratorial, but I think it's really clear. And as you, as you say, like, um, that if on the one hand we understand that children and young people are most at risk by family members, you know, their fathers, uncles, et cetera, um, then we can see anti-trafficking law rooted in stranger danger, as well as sex offender law and all of these um, interventions that use the language of stranger danger. They're a cover for nuclear families that are really, really dangerous for people. Um, and so that that's particularly concerning for me insofar as people who call themselves feminists support these these narratives. Um, so the, the fact that we've entered into a moment in which feminists are supporting narratives that give an alibi to you know abusive dads, I think is is really, really concerning. Um, and then of course they also have the effect of criminalizing people in informal economies and thus, 
um, pushing them back into low wage jobs. So they, they do a lot of heavy lifting. Um, if you are someone who is repping for the nuclear family, for abusers within those families, um, on the one hand, and then also for, for low wage employers on the other, then it's kind of a, a perfect combination. You write that in part, this is a story of whorephobia and bourgeois attachments to productive work and unpaid uh, private reproductive sex that has long created a vacuum of solidarity in the civilian left. But it also reflects the mainstream left's inability to recognize struggles that don't fit within the categories and demands of labor movements that were historically organized on behalf of white male workers. Are unions as labor organizing as it exists today in the United States and has historically, are they far more accommodating to jobs and workplaces for white workers, especially white male workers, than workers of color, especially women of color and the most marginalized? Are unions better suited for white workers and workplaces, if you will, than workers and workplaces of color? No, I think in this moment, there are so many really exciting union campaigns led by black and brown workers. Um, and in particular, if we're thinking about where the union movement is most strong right now, we're looking at food service, we're looking at nursing, we're looking at education. Um, and, and so these are feminized, racialized workers, and they have made a calculation that this kind of organizing makes sense for them and they have been winning real wins. So the, this making this historical point is not to minimize any of that. Um, but yeah, there is a long history of particularly trade unions um, existing primarily on behalf of white male workers. Um, and, and we can see some of the ways that that, that reverberates in, into contemporary union politics. One of those is, I think, this kind of combination of pity and disdain for gig workers, where so much of the thrust behind um, even organizing gigged workplaces, gigged workplaces is to make them look more like traditional jobs. So to demand, say, standardized hours for rideshare drivers um, is one example. But as we talked about before, um, there are a lot of workers, particularly caregivers, particularly people with disabilities for whom standardized hours isn't the kind of demand that they need. So I think both of those things are true. I'm really you know, excited about the campaigns that are underway in um, in a lot of jobs right now, but they don't, you know, that set of strategies just doesn't work for everyone. And I think, you know, circumstances are just too dire to not use every kind of tactic that we have available to us. And you point out that gig working sex workers don't fit into neat class categories. Many would rather have no boss than uh, one disciplined by collective bargaining. And like others with a long historical memory for state violence, most know the state as an antagonist rather than as a protective force to be engaged earnestly. So is work for the marginalized a state intervention? And how do we understand work differently for those who, of us who are not marginalized? Uh, how do we understand work differently when we see for the marginalized that work can be and is a state intervention? Can you say more about what you mean by work as a state intervention? about how work imposes uh, what you, uh, how you need to act and survive within the capitalist state as a, sure. a, a state intervention of insisting that you be a productive worker. Right, yeah. 
I mean, so, so yeah, the, the capitalist state has a lot at stake in, um, in ensuring a, a productive and you know, in many ways docile workforce. Um, again, this isn't just about taxation, but it's about what it means to, um, to operate on behalf of capital, which, which this state um, always has. And, and so that, that's, that's part of my concern with some of the um, attachments that trade unionism, unionism comes with, which is that the bargain has always been um, that, that trade unionism ensures a, a steady stream of productive workers under slightly better conditions. And often the, the um, kind of even explicit message has been um, that, that if corporate capital, for example, complies with demands, then the union will ensure that people continue to show up. So I think, you know, there's there's obviously a ton of really crucial wins that have come from that. And at the same time, um, there's not really a scenario in which that gets us to a more kind of radical political horizon. It's something that 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 kind of keeps things um, running. And so, so it, it's really a question of, of what the, what our end demands are. And I think that sex workers, you know, and I'm so glad that you, you in, intro this hour with Kombahi, um, sex workers are not only the most, you know, perhaps one of the most oppressed sectors of the working population, but, but also have less to lose. And that was also part of Kambahi's intervention, right? Is to say that like people at the bottom have left to, less to lose. And so people with less to lose often make bigger demands. We have been, have been speaking with Dr. Heather Berg, author of the Boston Review article, Freedom Not Benefits, Sex Workers or Labor's Vanguard. The left ignores them at its peril. Dr. Berg writes about sex work and social struggle. Her first book, published in 2021, is Porn Work, Sex, Labor, and Late Capitalism. You can find Heather on Twitter at drheatherberg and find out more about her by visiting the website drheatherberg.org. One last question for you, Heather, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate mm-hmm. to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write about, and you mentioned the platform cooperatives that scholars and activists advocate as the new horizon for gig workers. Uh, you also point out that contemporary sex workers aren't the only or first thinkers to resist uh, ten- this tendency. The radical auto worker and Marxist theorist James Boggs, people may know him as the husband of Grace Lee Boggs, the late Grace Lee Boggs, named uh, his critique in the 1960s with his analysis of a mainstream left whose attachments to a white male secu- securely employed proletariat limited its political horizon, its demands sought to ossify full-time employment under Fordism, a highly particular moment in the capitalist wage relation and one that was fading even then. Uh, James Boggs uh, looked hopefully to the outsiders, the massive people who have long labored outside the security and the discipline of the factory and could imagine radical alternatives. For Boggs, that meant exposing the idea that work is the precondition for basic human rights. Quote, the question of the right to a full life has to be divorced completely from the question of work. What would it take to divorce the right to a full life from the question of work? That that, that, that life lacks meaning and is not rewarding without a willingness to work. What is there beyond being 
a citizen or a worker? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. This doesn't feel like a question from hell for me. Um, yeah, full communism is what it would take, I think, and, and one um, really rooted in the understanding that, that people have so much richer capacities than, than can be um, absorbed by working life, whether, whether that working life is for, the, for capital, for a capitalist state, or, you know, as, as CLR James talked about, um, for, for what he called um, state capitalism so so the problem again is is what it means to have a life um, devoted to production um, in some ways that that's obviously worse than under capitalism but in in some ways like again that that problem persists even if the the spoils are more evenly distributed so what would that look like you know I I really think that humility here is important and I, I hope that doesn't sound like a cop out, but as much as as my politics are really centered around wanting more, around trying to get myself and others to demand more, I think it's also clear that that we are all breathing the same air and drinking the water. And I really hope that that we will get closer to that horizon and then start demanding even more, which is to say, like, I don't I don't trust anyone who says now that they know exactly what they want that to look like. Um, and this is something that the anti-work theorist, Kathy Weeks talks about, um, that we, we can't know until we get there and then we'll get closer and we keep making demands. Um, and so what that looks like at the end of the day, um, I hope is something so much richer than anything that I can conceive of from my current position. Um, but, but this is something again, that I turned to, to sex worker thought for, where sex workers have a real knack in some ways, you know, you could think about what it would mean to treat the state like a John. And so to make demands that are not earnest ones and then keep making them. Um, so, so you're never done asking. And so that's my answer. I don't, maybe I've turned it into the question from help uh, for my refusal to give you a blueprint. Does that, does that answer your question? Yes. And I love okay. the idea <laughs> of treating the state like a John. That is absolutely brilliant, Heather. Heather, thank you so much for being on our show. This has been a fantastic conversation and people should check out your book from 2021, Porn Work, Sex, Labor, and Late Capitalism. Thank you so much for being on our show. And whenever you have any new piece coming out, if you have a new book coming out, please get in contact with us so we can have you back on the show. I've really enjoyed today's conversation. I, I did too. Thank you so much for having me. These were great questions. I really appreciate it. Okay, take care. You too. Bye. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. Treating the state like a John. That's what would be a great tagline for the show. Treating the state like a John since 1996. This is hell. It's a good tagline for the show. Also, for people who enjoyed that conversation, there is a new book out. It's a collection of essays called Horror Phobia. It's a book uh, that has a whole bunch of different sex workers as well as people who are sociologists and other contributors to a collection of essays. And so if you are interested in more on sex workers, check out the new book, horror phobia this is not the media this is hell and yeah those questions from questions from hell need to be more hellish in 2023 and you though you know this is not the media because who the hell else is uh, talking about sex worker activism other than your friends here at this is hell 
uh, from guests like Heather Berg on uh, This Is How This Last Year. We talked about sex worker act- activism. Show your support. If you like that, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast with streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time. This podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash this is hell on last week's Patreon podcast. I haven't been able to stop thinking about gentrification since, well, since it started having a direct effect on my life, determining where I can and cannot live, where I want to live and where I don't want to live. In other words, for a very, very long time, we've uh, been discussing gentrification here on This Is Hell since like way back in the 20th century, dating back to at least the beginning of this century when we spoke with the writer Rebecca Solnit, who was on our show back in January of 2001, to discuss her book, Hollow City, Gentrification and the Eviction of Urban Culture. But I've been thinking about it a lot more, about the issue a lot more, since we had the conversations with Leslie Kern on her book, Gentrification is Inevitable and Other Lies, and our recent discussion with ProPublica journalist Mick Dumkey on how government housing policy on the local and federal levels uh, promote gentrification over the needs of existing community members. So... On this past week's uh, Patreon podcast, my monologue was all about me versus gentrification. Also on Patreon last week, we played a conversation from 2007 with Ben Wallace-Wells, who is currently a staff writer at The New Yorker, and I think he goes now by Benjamin Wallace-Wells on all of his bylines. Don't know why that change happened. At the uh, time of the interview we uh, played last week, uh, Ben was a contributing editor at Rolling Stone, and he was on to discuss his most recent writing at the time, which was an article titled, How America Lost the War on Drugs. But the only way you can hear about my war on gentrification and Benjamin Wells on how the United States lost yet another war, that war being the war on drugs. The only way you can hear all of that is by becoming a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Sebastian, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell, and have we had any listeners respond yet? This week's question from hell is, its an, I, I swear I did not write this. This is all Chuck's fault. <laughs> Your style is affecting me. Uh, apparently. Um, yeah. And, and anyway, this week's question from hell, 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 is uh, the proverbial worst gift you can get during the holiday season is a lump of coal. But who knows where to buy a lump of coal anymore? In these modern times, what is the worst gift you can possibly receive during the holidays? And we have a few both on Facebook and Twitter, but for... Uh, as is tradition, I will limit myself to Facebook. Uh, Paolo S. writes, Questions. Brianna M. Uh, writes, Shares in Twitter. I mean, might as well be shares in Tesla. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, That's um, dropping like a rock, too. <laughs> yeah, but at, at least coal you can, you know... Burn to for to make heat. Well, this is the so argument to... that my girlie was making. She was she said we were watching some version of the Christmas story, like from mm-hmm. the 30s or 50s or whatever. And uh, the in uh, Bob Cratchit is asking uh, Scrooge, "Hey, you know, can uh, I get an extra lump of coal to put in the stove today?" Yeah. And he's like, "No, you're. I don't want you to waste my coal." So in the past, when people say you got a lump of coal from Santa, maybe Santa was doing. I mean, granted, not very thoughtful when it comes to climate change and greenhouse gases and global warming and global heating and all that stuff. But getting a lump of coal probably in the past wasn't that horrible of a gift. Yeah, I mean, it's still it's still kind of useful. Yeah. Um, 
and like I don't know, like these days, if you uh, if you give your child a hump call, you might be like one of those really enter enterprising, entrepreneurial, free spirited libertarian types. And you're just like, well, I'm just giving my child a lump of coal, so he really understands long term investments. This is not a lump of coal. This is a diamond. It's a diamond. It's gonna be a diamond sometime. I don't know why why I'm suddenly texting or whatever. I don't um, know what that anyway. is. Uh, Any more answers? And it, yeah, yeah. Uh, Adam A writes. <clears throat> and this has to be sung. Uh, four, uh, four pounds of bacon, three French toasts, two turtlenecks, and who the f put my beer up in that damn tree? <laughs> wow! Wow! A musical. I, 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 don't, know, I don't know if he, I don't know if he, if he intended, intended that, 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 that to be sung, but he can't do anything about that. So. By the way, lovely voice, my friend. Yeah. Well. Do you ever uh, sing in choir or anything like that? Oh yeah, for forever. I also have like classical voice training. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, FTX tokens says uh, Chris <laughs> H. That's a pretty good thing to get in your sacking. <laughs> John T writes Trump trading NFTs. Well, <laughs> timely, but. Ugh. And Warren L. writes, radioactive chunk of concrete from a decommissioned nuclear power plant. It glows in the dark. <laughs> well, that is my tagline to that. And uh, yeah, and that's... that's so it's very functional. Yeah. But yeah. if it's in your stocking, you'll probably see it through the stocking, yeah. if not lighting the stocking on fire. Mm. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our swag right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us, or you can email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's best of shows. We'll have more of your answers to the question from hell later this week. It's now time for the past inside the present, when our producer, Sebastian Vupper, who has a doctorate in, uh, I almost said he has a doctorate in PhDs. He has a doctorate in history. <laughs> I got a doctorate in PhDs. I'm really good at him. Uh, so uh, he's going to be talking about giving his segment, The Past Inside the Present, which gives us the historical context uh, from the past that we need to help have a better understanding of what's happening in the present today. Sebastian, take it away. The past inside the present. How do we know what we know about the past? So today I want to talk about, well, the past inside the present, but also the present as the past of the future. This issue is something that crosses my professional historian mind quite a lot. And this week especially, um, or, well, these months especially, with uh, one of the current moment's most important communications platforms being at risk of death. Uh, but back to my initial question. How, how do we know what we know about the past? For the most part, when we're not talking about things like deep history, where historians and scientists team up to get more clarity about things through stuff like carbon dating, for the most part, we know things about the past uh, through things that people in the past made that we can look at today. And at least for our culture, a lot of that are things that have been written down in one way or the other. Sure, sometimes there are issues in terms of how someone in the present can make sense of things someone in the past has written down. There are language barriers and context barriers. Um, language barriers and context barriers. But sometimes people in the past wrote in a language that we may understand today still, but used a script that essentially died out. 
Um, but ultimately, all of these issues are solvable. The present as past of the future faces different challenges, though. And, well, it faces a very real possibility of being a paradoxical time during which an incredible amount of information was produced by the people living today, but all of that might just be lost forever. And that is where the death of Twitter comes to haunt me as a historian. The internet, it is said, does not forget. My broader point here is about more than just the internet, though. It is that this is a handy, commonly accepted truism. But it is actually pretty false, as most truisms are. The internet forgets things all the time. There are a lot of different aspects to this kind of digital memory loss, and all of them represent different challenges that require some form of solutions, and few of these challenges have solutions at the moment. A big issue in the case of Twitter and basically all other social media platforms is that these platforms, these are platforms that are populated with content made by people today uh, and are run by t corporations and companies. And unlike a letter exchange between friends in the 1920s when these companies one day die, there might not be a way to preserve the myriads of messages exchanged. Um, in the 1920s, if two friends exchanged letters that survived until the, in, until the present, you could just, you know, try to read them. Um, but today, if, uh, well, or rather in like 100 years, when uh, somebody tries to look at the conversation I had with somebody else on Twitter, well, good luck doing that, because who knows if that's still readable at that time. Anecdotally, when I started college, I used a pretty obscure word processor. Um, like, a, a pretty obscure world, word alternative, word, like Microsoft Word alternative. The producer of this program, however, has long since ceased existing, and the word processor used a wholly proprietary file format, meaning without the program at hand, no other program like Microsoft Word, Adobe Acrobat, or LibreOffice, or whatever other thing you are using to, you know, write things, can't, just simply cannot open the files that I wrote my notes in during the first few years of undergrad. Which means those notes are lost to me, essentially. Granted, this is a bit of an apples-to-oranges comparison, but the same thing is essentially true of, of Twitter and Facebook and all the other social media giants. When those companies go under someday, and they certainly will, uh, because it's capitalism, there's nothing less forever, um, we will likely lose all of that history forever. In part simply because nobody at those companies will feel a compelling reason to preserve those histories for the future, because there's no money and no profits to be made with, with those things. And keep in mind, tweets have become accepted as academically citable sources. The Chicago Manual style Manual of Style has indeed a style guide for how one can properly cite a tweet in an academic paper. Archivists have been warning about this problem for a while. Uh, we're currently a society that produces insane amounts of source material for future historians, but due to all the issues that come with the digital world, the current moment will for those future historians likely read completely blank. Everything digital might seem forever these days, but it actually everything digital is quite flimsy and very ephemeral. Currently, there are quite a few Twitter users who are downloading their personal Twitter archives, which is good. But if those archives will still be legible in the future is, well, questionable. What about file types? Will a .txt file still be legible for, compu for the computers of the future? 
A piece of paper that someone wrote on with ink does not have that issue. Granted, this basically means that archivists need to make sure that the methods to access these these things are preserved alongside the contents. But all of that isn't quite so simple. Cloud comp computing, for example, also doesn't really represent a foolproof solution to these problems. If the cloud proprietors go under, because, you know, what's the biggest cloud propri proprietor these days? It's Amazon and Google. And, um, yeah, they might seem like the biggest companies that ever existed, but they too are finite and mortal. Um, and once those companies go under, the material too becomes inaccessible. And again, anecdotally, I lost quite a few photographs from the early 2000s that I kept on an online photo storage site, and that has since ceased to exist. The internet forgets things all the time, um, just usually not the things that you wanted to forget. Um, Anyway, remember the 1990s and the plethora of personal websites that made up the internet before the advent of social media? Remember ICQ? AOL Messenger? Can you still, without issue, access your own personal logs from that time if you wanted to? Can you still access most of the websites of that time? There are some places like the Internet Archive at archive.org who run uh, what's called the Wayback Machine that saved instances of old websites, but that archive too is lossy and spotty. It's not. It's not. A, 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 it's not a copy of the entire internet from whatever date. It's just like spot here, spot there. So the old internet is already full of holes and full of sites that have been forgotten or that simply disappeared because they were hosted on web services that died. And at the time, only few people thought about that. <laughs> or, or accept that these things could be important artifacts for the future. And there are some really weird problems, too, when it comes to digital preservation and the archiving of digital cultural artifacts. Yes, one of the weirder problems would be archiving porn sites from the early 2000s, but that's not where I was going here. Get your mind out of the gutter, bucko. I was more thinking about early online games and how massively difficult a task it is to preserve them once the dedicated service disappeared. There are some digital archivists who curate old online game spaces still for future generations, but that is, of course, very difficult since online games were still mostly digital spaces that were populated with people interacting with each other. And that is very hard, if not impossible, to archive for the future. What was early World of Warcraft like? You'd have to have been there to really know, literally. And then there is another wrinkle to all of this, another challenge. Because all things digital run on machines, and machines break over time. When the machines we created, today, uh, we created today's cultural artifacts on die, the artifacts, unless they were printed out on paper, will disappear and become inaccessible. The worst aspect of this is that there simply is no medium for data storage that lasts for longer than, say, 20, 30, 50 years. Magnetic hard disks fail from material attrition and from magnetic decay. Solid-state disks have their own set of problems that are actually too complicated for me to try and explain here. Um, optical media, CDs, DVDs, and so on, suffer from what's called disk rot, where the thin reflective layer simply oxidizes over time, rendering the disks unreadable. And don't get me started on SD cards and USB drives. Um, future archivists plead with you to please always make backups of your data. Because only, only if data is backed up 
frequently on different kinds of storage mediums, will it really survive into the future? Um, because all storage media fail eventually. And that brings me to another wrinkle, the law. Say you own a large number of obscure movies on disc, not necessarily porn, but whatever rocks your boat, we won't judge. You bought these discs legally. Now, after 10, 15 years of uh, sitting on your shelf, they will eventually begin to rot. Now you could go ahead and try to prevent losing access to those movies. You could go ahead and make a digital copy, burn the DVD, copy the movie to a hard drive or something like that. But the problem is, that's illegal. Remember those big FBI splash screens at the start of a disc? Yeah, you're technically not allowed to make a copy. Not even for preservation's sake. And if the movie in question simply isn't available anymore, well, tough luck, buddy. You're not above the law. The law says you cannot, you must not copy that floppy, that movie. You do not have the rights. Some archivists do get themselves into quite some legal trouble, or at least on legal thin ice, trying to preserve copyright-protected materials that would be lost if they didn't preserve them, but that they have no legal right to preserve. And so, what's the solution here to all of this, to any of this? I don't know. I'm just a simple city historian who wants you, the listener, to be aware of the nature of our historical footprint. Our footprint at the moment is likely someone else's property or locked in someone else's property. Our culture is someone else's property. And if, if that someone doesn't want that property to survive and to become the future's history, then... We might have to break the law to make that happen. Because, well, all this is hell after all. That was really, really great. What I One of the things that I learned as a, just an undergraduate, I mean, you got a PhD, so I'm sure that you learned this you know, a long, long time ago, was that when you, if you actually can get your hands on a physical newspaper from the past that you're doing some sort of research on a certain event or whatever, uh, the the weird thing about it is that you got to remember the perspective f- from that article, the person who wrote that article. What is their perspective? And so, like, I was doing this uh, research on the CHA, Chicago Housing Authority, and the only things I could find were articles that were, you know, written by the CHA. They had their own journal at one point, mm. and they were all very pro-CHA. So it took me, then I had to go find other newspaper articles, other journals, tr- to try to find something that was more critical. And it took a little bit of digging before I found something. I mean, it didn't take that much. But you always got to remember that what you're reading from the past, like when you're reading somebody's uh, memoir, mm. you know, it, it, that comes from a perspective, that comes from a context that you can't just take it on face value that this is all true. So it's yeah. just well, welcome to being a historian. Exactly, exactly. It's, it was I love taking history classes, and I'm sure you did too. And that's why you took so many history classes. What was your specialty anyway? Uh, I wrote my dissertation on German American newspapers of the 19th century and uh, German immigration and the German diaspora in the U.S. and how that connected to Germany and uh, d- d- some highfalutin concepts of like what. Like, how you can think about immigrants and immigration and constituting like a larger cultural sphere that spans natural and political borders. So, is there going to be a movie? <laughs> Very unlikely. So, uh, Sebastian, uh, what is the next interview we will be playing here on the Best of 22 as selected by our listeners with a little help from the staff? 
Oh yeah, there we go. Uh, tomorrow we have um, yeah, who we just talked about, Laura Molin. Um, the interview with Laura Molin, uh, on the article "Care Tactics: Hacking an Ableist World." That was at the Baffler Magazine. We promised her a transcript of that interview, and Sebastian and I don't know if we ever actually. It ex- sent that. It exists. We know we, there's a transcript. We, we made it. We just can't remember if we actually sent it to her. She wanted to have a transcript in case people who are deaf are, you know, tuning into the show. You can't hear it. So she wanted a transcript. She wanted to send her a transcript, and we we're going to be figuring out if we actually did. In any case, we will, once we uh, figure that out, we will have it on the page with the Laura Malden interview. There will be a link to the transcript as well. And, uh, Who's going to be? What's the third interview we are featuring on the 2022 edition and of This Is Best of Hell? The third interview this week is fan favorite uh, Gerald Horn's return, uh, who wrote The Counter Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. I don't know why, but that's getting a ton of press right now. I have no idea why that book is getting so much press right now and so much coverage. But for all the people out there who just found out about uh, Gerald's most recent book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, we'll be playing that as our uh, the third interview in our best of 2022. This is Hell Broadcasts. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Sebastian Vooper for producing. The This Is Hell Holiday Office Party returns on the winter solstice, Wednesday, December 21st, beginning at 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. You want to be there for this because it'll be immediately after I have had my first dental appointment in three years since before the pandemic. So I bet I will be full of Novocaine. In uh, is is your office not having a holiday office party this year? Make the this is how holiday office party your holiday office party. Work online and don't have a place to have a holiday office party. Make our party your party. Not crazy about all your coworkers, but would love to celebrate the holidays with maybe some of them. Make our party your party. Will you be in Chicago visiting family for the holidays? I know a lot of people are. I've ever been con- contacted with by a whole bunch of listeners who are in Chicago just for the holidays. You want to hang out with your friends at the This Is You'll want to hang out with your friends at the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party, which is going to be this Wednesday, and every person who attends We'll get a special gift from your friends here at This Is Hell. Each and every one who joins us will get a hardback copy of E is for Erotica, written by listener Jordan uh, Rollins, with illustrations done by F.C. Brandt. Thanks to Jordan for sending us enough copies so we can ensure that each and every one of you will actually get a copy of his book if you attend the This Is Hell holiday office party. I showed it to that book to somebody here last night when there was a holiday pop-up store, and they were very offended and shocked and they gave the book to somebody else that's how good it is that's a return of this is hell holiday office party this wednesday december 21st beginning at 6 p.m at carrie's lounge 2251 west devon avenue we hope to see you all there manufacturing descent since 1996 this is hell my demon is on my butt now <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller and my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>